Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the assurance that we have uh, over your rule and reign in history. And Father, we pray that this word would go out with uh, a power that you would challenge us um, in areas where we doubt that you would comfort us in, in areas when where we are fearful. And Lord, we pray that all of this uh, would be to your glory, that we, your people, would trust you uh, and that we would have the confidence to point to you to others. And so, Lord, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be pleasing in your sight and may it be for Christ's fame. Amen. I wonder what your reaction is like when you um, sit down to watch the six o'clock news or when you pick up your phone and open Facebook or Twitter and scroll down and you see events of this world, such as war, famine and natural disasters. When you see the latest political corruption or when you um, uh, see all manner of things, whether it's an economic collapse. Do you do what my grandma used to do uh, and basically despair? Uh, she would say things like, oh, I'm glad I'm on my way out. Or she would lament at the possibility of trying to even raise children in this day and age. She was definitely a, a pessimist. Or are you a bit more like my friend Emma, who was, I would say, overly optimistic? Um, her view of life was that everything is kind of uh, rosy, uh, going well. Uh, technological developments and other developments mean that essentially things are going in the right direction. Uh, as, uh, the human project is improving, as it were. So are you a, an optimist or a pessimist? Which one's right? Which one's biblical? Well, uh, Revelation 6 uh, gives us some insight into how we should understand uh, current and world events. And so we're going to jump into that now. I think the big, the big idea, so that you know where I'm going, the big idea of this passage is that the Lord's judgment of humanity is both now and not yet. That's a big thrust of this passage. And then we've got some subheadings. So firstly, know that the earth's perils are within the Lord's control. When we read these first eight verses, um, a couple of questions pop into our mind. So firstly, what is it talking about? Uh, is, is, this a, is this a literal picture? When we look to the skies um, in the coming days, weeks and months, are we to expect this awesome and yet scary event to take place? riders coming out of the skies on horses well remember again we're in the book of revelation the genre of revelation is um apocalyptic literature uh, and so by definition this type of literature literature is full of symbolism and imagery and whilst it, the whole thing's not it's not just a symbol it does utilize symbolism more than any other piece of literature so we need to remember that so it's a a, a real event uh, and yet it utilises symbolism. So that's what it is. Another question that comes up is, when is this talking about? Uh, popular culture has taken this biblical idea of the, uh, this biblical truth of the four horsemen and it's, and it's ran away with it. So whether you're watching Terminator 2 or whether you're looking at the X-Men or the Simpsons, uh, in each of these cases, according to popular culture, the four horsemen come at the very end of the age. Um, and so a question is, are we to expect some future event in which these kind of vicious riders are going to appear on Earth? I'm going to say no. No, no I don't think so. Um, and we're to be driven by the scriptures and not culture. So put simply, I think that these four riders symbolize 
different earthly devastations that are going on throughout the whole church age. So conquest, war, famine and death are something that have been going on since the time of Christ and will continue to go on till the end of the age. As you read this, it's like a little bit like scrolling down your newsfeed on social media or watching the six o'clock news. Let's have a quick look. So verses one and two. So the first seal is opened and the the living creature calls uh, and then appears a white horse, white uh, symbolizing victory. He's got a crown, which uh, denotes rule and power. And he's also holding a bow. And so the bow is a really dangerous weapon. Might not seem so dangerous now in an age of guns and grenades, uh, but actually a rider on horseback with a bow is a formidable force. And look at the aim of this rider. Look down at, at verse two. It's conquest. I mean, brothers and sisters, how many issues in our past history have been birthed from a desire for conquest? If you think of the most recent world wars, weren't they initiated for a desire for conquest over other nations? And further back in history, whether it's Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan or the British Empire or the French Empire or the Spanish conquistadors, it's conquest. Even if you look um, today at world events, as you scroll down that news feed, whether it's Russia or China, again, this, this white rider is on his way out today. Secondly, you know, you're scrolling a little bit further. Now comes out this second rider, a fiery red horse representing battle and bloodshed. And the rider's armed with a sword and he's given power to take peace from the earth. This is a, a symbol of war. These desires for conquest often lead to war, don't they? Our world has been, it's been devastated by war, whether it's Bosnia or the Falklands or Korea or Vietnam or Afghanistan. So recorded um, in the 20th century alone, so in the 100 years of the 20th century, 108 million people died within conflicts, within wars. This is today, isn't it? This, this, this rider is going out today. You scroll a little bit further, newsflash on your phone. There's an important update. There's a famine in Mark the Country of Your Choosing. Because these horrendous wars and these conflicts, they cause the destabilising of economies. Uh, They tear down the social fabric of nations and they lead to poverty and famine. This this black horse that comes out, he's holding scales, representing now how scarce food is. And obviously with uh, poverty and and the scarcity of food comes soaring food prices. Look at verse 6. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. So two pounds of wheat for a day's wage was it was a soaring price. It was estimated somewhere 10 to 15 times more than the normal price. But as we look across the world, we see that today, don't we? Uh, One study said that somewhere in the region of a billion people, one billion, one seventh of the world's population, are classed as suffering with chronic malnutrition. They go to bed hungry, they wake up hungry. That's one billion people and well over half of those people are in areas affected by war. The effects of war and devastation directly link into famine. And it's not even war-torn countries that suffer from this judgment. Anybody remember the ridiculous food price hike during the lockdown? 
where a £2 bag of pasta went for £1,000 and a £10 bottle or a £10 tub of baby's formula milk went for well over £1,000. We don't need to look uh, too far around, do we, to see this happening? And no more so than the fourth judgment. Look at verses 7 and 8. Seems that this rider uh, has been out in force more this year than any other. Well, that's the way it would seem, at least. Uh, this pale horse comes out. His rider's name is Death. Uh, but it's not true that uh, that Death has just been around uh, uh, more so this year. Death has been up around since the uh, since the incoming of Sin. Um, yet there's a, 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 a reality that this is talking about uh, now. Uh, 150,000 people die every 24 hours globally. 150,000 people die. Um, to help us try and visualise that, uh, you imagine lining up 1,000 double-decker buses uh, and filling them to the rafters. That's how many people pass out of this world every 24 hours. Or um, if you were to get Murrayfield Stadium, you'd be able to fill it almost three times every 24 hours. Uh, over a million people have died this year alone, uh, 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 as reported, from COVID-19. And that's not including other cancers and communicable diseases or suicide or anything else. You see, as we read this passage, we could well be reading the six o'clock news, couldn't we? And the question is then, to us who believe in God, to us who uh, believe in the scriptures, what are we meant to think about this? What are we meant to think as we look out to the world? Is it is it out of control? So sometimes it feels like that. When we look out into the world and we see devastation and death and war and famine, sometimes it's hard not to despair. Is that what this text is wanting to make us do? I don't think so. And so the question is then, how are we to respond as Christians? I think the world seems most out of control, most uh, fearful when we only look at the six o'clock news, when we only look at our news feeds and the reports of the way the world interprets what's going on. But we need to be driven by the scriptures. We need to be driven by what God's word says. And even when we take a look at these first eight verses, when we look a little bit closer, we see that it's not out of control at all. It's quite the opposite. I've got five Quick points to show us from these texts how God is truly the one in control. So firstly, who's the one who opens the seals? In verses 1, 3, 5 and 7, the only one worthy to open the seal is the Lamb from chapters 4 and 5. The one to which all heaven and earth will surround with their praise and who will receive glory forever and ever. God opens the scroll. He's in control. Secondly, Look in each case, who's doing the calling and who's doing the coming? It's the living creatures, that, so God's angelic host, they're the ones who are saying, come. And that's not a request. It's not a please come here, it's a command. And there's an immediacy. Look, at the riders then appear before John. So it's God and his servants doing the calling. Thirdly, each of the riders was... They were given something. So whether it's power or a crown or a sword, any power or rule or anything they have is given. It's derived. 
and the implication of the verb there given is given by God. Fourthly, the Lord actually restrains and limits. Look at verse six. Do not damage the oil and the wine. So even during famine, there is a there is a hedging in, there's a protection, there's a limitation. Finally, number five, even in death, verse eight, this rider's power is being given only over a fourth of the earth. Now, I think that that quarter is just symbolic. uh, But what it means is that it's the least portion of humanity, that there's limitation even in death. And so I think it's clear from this, these scriptures uh, that God is sovereignly in control. Okay, this is judgment, to be fair. Uh, and the effects are devastating. It should make us weep and mourn. Uh, part of the purpose is to wake people up from their spiritual lethargy and to warn of the greater coming judgment. But as believers, this passage should fill us with confidence. Um, uh, as it has done uh, readers throughout every uh, generation of the church. Because we know the one who's in control. And so on Monday morning, when you wake up and when the the new restrictions come in and they're completely contradictory to the other restrictions that were put in place, or when your neighbours or your work colleagues begin to talk about the increase of cases, even to the level of March, or when the evening news reports again the increase in death rate, verses 1 to 8 should comfort us. We should remember the one who is in control, that even death and disease are on a leash in God's economy. So the parameters of this pandemic, they're not set by Nicola Sturgeon or Sage or Cobra or some secret society being controlled by Bill Gates, if you're tempted to believe that kind of a thing. But they are controlled by almighty God. The lamb who sits on the throne is in control of disease, death, destruction, disaster and everything. It's his servants that say, come and everything obeys. It's the Lord who commands death to go here and go there and it obeys. And it's also the Lord who commands life to come. The one who raised Lazarus from the death, uh, from the dead, as it were, that commands uh, that we are to listen to. And brothers and sisters, where his envoys. I mean, what a privilege. So this should fill us with expectancy and hope because the Lord's told us ahead of time what will happen. So we've got the inside scoop. We, we know, you know, our neighbours, our family, our friends, those that don't know the Lord, they rightly interpret the events of this world with fear, panic and chaos. But we shouldn't. And we can then speak into that situation with a word of calm and trust in the one who is in control. Brothers and sisters, when famine comes, remember that we know the bread of life. When death comes, remember that we know the one who has conquered death and death will come one way or the other Uh, in the passage that was just read to us um, it's through martyrdom this is my second point know that the persecuted church is within the lord's care look at verse nine when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of god and the testimony they had maintained so we see at the opening of this this fifth seal john's vision kind of pans to the martyrs to the saints in heaven, to soul upon soul under this this great altar, uh, this sign of sac- symbol of sacrifice. 
And their death is in direct correlation to their association with Jesus. They held to the word of God and to the testimony uh, that they had maintained. That's why they were slain. So these faithful men and women that stood firm in the face of temptation, believing God's promises, paid the ultimate price. I wonder how we would do as a church under these conditions. It might seem quite far from us right now to suffer and to have to pay with our lives for following Jesus. But for the early church, that wouldn't have been the case at all. And in fact, for the majority of our brothers and sisters around this globe, as they read this passage, they know all too well this experience. War and suffering, uh, uh, sorry, war and the suffering of the church go hand in hand. Open Doors reported that in 2019, 2,983 Christians died in martyrdom for professing their faith. It was a thousand more the year before. Uh, And Nigeria remains the top country where Christians are most likely to die for their faith. I I wonder how it makes you feel when you see brothers and sisters across the world being slain for their faith, for their profession of faith in Jesus. It should make us feel like verse 10. We should want to cry out to the sovereign Lord, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. The cry here in verse 10 is the cry that the early church had. It's the cry that our brothers and sisters across the globe had. It's the cry that the whole historic church has had from the psalmist who would cry out, um, how long, O Lord, will your people suffer? And the call from God's people to God himself is for judgment and vengeance. And we'll see that in a few verses time. But actually, what's quite surprising here is the response Look at verse 11. These martyrs, these men and women that have died for their faith in Jesus are told to wait a little longer until their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. It's not only surprising, in some ways it could be quite shocking. And and that verb to wait there, they're told to wait, is also translated as to rest. They are told to rest just a little longer. And so there's this idea of calm. I'm in control, says the Lord. There's a plan. There's a full number. I know what I'm doing. For for me, this, this text jolts me up from my cowardice in evangelism. Sometimes in my most holy moments, I kind of think to myself, yeah, I, I, I think I'd die for Jesus if it came to it. But then I'm flooded with images of times that I've backed out of conversations where all I've needed to do is speak for him. And so I think this passage should drive us to to prayer, firstly and primarily to pray for our brothers and sisters across this world who are suffering and even paying with their lives and the lives of their children. And it should embolden us. We should pray for boldness for our own witness and our own devotion to the word of Jesus and to his testimony. Our final subpoint is is basically an outworking of the previous two. Know that creation's destruction leaves nowhere to hide from the Lord. So it 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 fulfills the first judgment on the earth 
into its completion. And it also vindicates the suffering church from sub-point two. Look with me at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropping from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So again, the, the lamb opens this seal. But what we read here is of a completely different order. So this is this is the judgment that accompanies truly the end of all things. And so this this text might sound quite strange to you. What moon turning blood red and a sun turning black. But essentially what John's seeing here and what he's writing down for us is this uh, this compilation of Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, all referring to the judgment of the world. And he kind of sees this in one great vision and compiles it to us uh, for us together. So earthquakes represent God's holiness and his presence and his righteous anger. Uh, the created orders falling to pieces. There's, there's an unfolding, there's an unraveling of everything. I mean, actually, just try and picture this, that the sun, the sun that sits in the sky 24 hours a day, no longer shines. The stars begin to fall from the sky. Mountains begin to crumble and flee from where they belong. That fixed elements of this world, they're like, they're like bubbles from a child's toy that fizzle and pop into nothing at the presence of the creator. Everything that seems immovable, everything solid, everything stable, the things that human beings base their times and seasons and months by, the very fabric of time just melts at the presence of the holy and righteous creator. And the result for those who witness this is in verse 15. Look at me at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So this is this is comprehensive. There's a seven sets of people, kings and princes and generals, the rich, the mighty. This is everyone, celebrities, YouTubers, rich and famous, the one percent multi-billionaires, whether it's child abusers or sex traffickers, liars and cheats. Your really nice neighbour down the road that just dismisses Jesus this is all the God-rejecting nice folk in the world. They share one thing in common, that on that day they will face the same judgment, the same holy God, and that there will be no place to hide. And the desperation of their plea, look at it in verse 16, they call out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So rather than face God, these sinners are pleading to the jagged mountains and to the rocks to fall on them and crush them. Being obliterated from existence is better than being in the presence of a holy God seeking vengeance. There will be absolutely no fear like it. The greatest and the most toughest of us will melt like a little child. Is this scary? It should be. I think the, the Lord has given us this picture in order 
to scare us, in order to shake us, in order to get us to think about sin and about holiness and about the judgment and about where we stand. If you're not a Christian today, I say this with love and compassion, but no, the Bible describes you as an enemy of God. And the, and the cry of God's enemies on that day is that the rocks and the mountains would fall upon them because no one who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb is what they're crying. And that's the question. Who, who can withstand the holy and righteous wrath of Almighty God? The question is no one. No one except his own perfect son, the one who came and lived and died a perfect life. He's the only one who can withstand. And all those who take shelter in him. So if you're not a Christian, forget about calling for the rocks to fall on you on that day because it will not help. Call out to Christ today, the solid rock. Don't try and take shelter in anything else, in your morality, in your parents' faith, in your church attendance, in your good deeds. None of that will work. Take shelter in Christ today. You need, I need moral perfection. We don't have it. Christ does. You need a complete righteousness, which means a, a right standing before a holy God. You don't have it, but Christ does. Only Jesus, the lamb slain for the sins of the world, can protect you and find shelter in him today. Turn from your sin, repent, say sorry, believe that God, um, believe that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead and you'll be forgiven. You'll take shelter in the lamb today. Um, if you want some more information, please do get in touch with us. There'll be an opportunity at the end of the service. <clears throat> and so... <sighs> It leaves us with the question, which of the views from our introduction were right? As we look at the events of this world, as we think about the future, are we to be like my grandma and despair? Or are we to be like my friend Emma with our over-optimism? I mean, as we read this passage and as we look at the world, it would seem on an initial interpretation that my grandma would be right. But actually the conflict, war and pain and death are everywhere. But actually, firstly, it's always been this way. Our media age just seems to throw it in our face more often. And so we need to be filling our gaze with a greater vision. Neither are right. Neither pessimism nor unwavering optimism. The right view is the one here in Revelation 6, that there is judgment. And we should weep and lament and mourn. But actually, we're to remember that it's not out of control, that there's a sovereign Lord who is in control, bringing about his plans and purposes, even in suffering. And so we're to warn others and we're to trust in the one who sits on the throne. Let's pray. Oh God, you are holy and you are pure. You are angry at sin. But our God, we thank you that you have made a way for sinners to be forgiven. We can find shelter from the wrath to come in Jesus Christ, the one who took sin upon himself to suffer in the place of sinners like us and rose again from the dead, defeating death and sin. Lord, thank you that you have provided such a saviour. Help us to look to him, to trust in him, to clothe ourselves in him by faith. 
And Lord, may we find forgiveness today. Lord, we pray that we as your people would be those that would be a prayerful people and that we would be a bold uh, and zealous people, that we would reach out with this great news for the world that so desperately needs it. And pray that all this would be to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.